I think it's the one-time gain problem. I mean, I think most people look at business, they say the world's big, I can always find more people to interact with, and so I'm going to exact as much value out of the situation in the short term as possible. And unfortunately, it works well enough for a number of people for long enough that it seems to be the way to go. Hey, podcast listener, even if you are alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that today, right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs from all around the globe seeking to grow better, more profitable, location-independent businesses. If you'd like to learn more about what we do and download our entire back catalog, check out tropicalmba.com. Today's episode is about the most difficult of topics, I think. The toughest nut to crack over the past few years, Ian, for us, has been how do you make money with your money? That is, how do you successfully invest in small businesses but not have to run them on a day-to-day basis? Well, today's guest has cracked that nut, and I'm really excited to hear the story. It's a black box. It's a little bit of a black box. I mean, we've been talking about it. We've had so many episodes about it. Question for you. Have you made any investments? Well, today's guest, I think last year he reviewed like 2,000 deals. So no, I've reviewed like five deals in the last year and I passed on all of them. It is my understanding that you've reviewed about 25 camper vans for refurbishment. Oh, I've bought one of those. Yeah, that was a a small, small deal compared to some of these deals that we're going to hear about today. Yeah, and I got to say, you know, I've invested in an index fund, which is sort of a really standard way to put some money in the market, but I as well have not made any significant investments. But what I found so fascinating about today's guest, it's this idea that I think me and you have been kind of kicking around, but we've never really seen anybody doing it. And this is it. Today's show is about this kind of idea that I think we've thought about, but we never really felt like it was a possibility. Yeah, essentially owning a bunch of different businesses. And when I say different, I mean, they are different. They have different management structures. They're in different markets. They have different customers. So owning all these different businesses, but not actually having to operate them. You know, looking back retrospectively, Dan, on the business that we sold, you know, this was one of the paths that we could have gone down, I think. In hindsight, we just didn't have the confidence, you know, to say like, okay, here's this management structure. We're going to put it in place. It's going to run all on its own. And we're just going to basically talk to them when they need help. I think it's very interesting that our guest today is able to do that. It's a fascinating and unique approach. And it's also a strategy that has gained today's guest quite the following. My name is Brent Bishore. I'm the founder and CEO of Adventures. We buy boring businesses and try to make them a little less boring. So we have five late stage portfolio companies, two manufacturers, a construction firm, a online PR firm, and a military recruitment firm. And what was the first one that you bought? First one we bought was the military recruitment firm. We closed on that uh, about eight years ago. Was it just serendipity that you got into this line of work? or? Yeah, well, I mean, how I got into it was serendipity. I mean, I've always been interested in the, the holding company model, if you want to call it that, where you can you know, choose where to reinvest in the portfolio and have optionality in various places. But in terms of how I directly got involved in it, it was, you know, just pure luck. I got a referral to a business owner who had been left at the altar a couple times. And I took that as a signal that the person wanted me to take a crack at it. And the person thought he was just making a nice introduction to kind of a fellow person in my industry. And so 
one thing led to another and ended up buying the business. And that kind of put, put me on a different uh, trajectory. So Ian, you were the one who chatted with Brent. What did you find interesting about his approach? And, and why do you think this is sort of making waves in the private equity world? I think what is very interesting about Brent's approach is how it's counterintuitive to most of these PE firms. From everything I gather, Brent is a spreadsheet guy and his organization cares a lot about spreadsheets, but that's not necessarily what they care about first. First and foremost, what they care about is people. And I think that that's a great approach because people are sustainable. People run these companies and people are the the ones that make the money, not the spreadsheets. I don't know if you ever met anybody in the private equity world, but it's always like this very aggressive, like if I'm going to give you this money from all my investors, then it's got to be like this kind of return. And the way Brent approaches is like, look, everyone listening to this show knows how hard it is to grow a business and knows how much of it becomes your identity and your family's livelihood. And so if you build a three or $4 million business, like you don't want to be dealing with these, like for lack of a better term, like slick Wall Street types or whatever. You know what I'm saying? Like you want to deal with someone that's going to care about the asset that you built. To me, it feels like that's what he's tapping into. To fill you in a little bit about Brent's backstory, 10 years ago, Brent dropped out from doing his law degree and his MBA and began his investment career. He did have a robust skill set, meaning he'd already built up a successful advertising agency. But to me, this is pretty much a big leap, Dan, to go from owning an advertising agency to owning multiple businesses. So I began the interview asking Brent why, at that point in his life, he decided to buy a business. And in his case, it was a military recruitment business, of all things, which seems incredibly specialized to me. Rather than starting a new business from scratch, which would be my instinct, Dan, and what we've done in the past, he bought a business. So this one is going to be at tropicalmba.com forward slash Brent Beshore. That's Brent, B-E-S-H-O-R-E. And before we dive back into the episode, I'll just mention one thing. Brent mentions a Monte Carlo simulation, and this is just a technique to assess risk. To me, it sounds like a really good vacation. Let's go to the casino. That's what I was thinking. Well, I mean, I think that anytime you're looking at the decision to build or buy, you've got to look at what it would take to be able to get into the similar position of the owner that you're considering trading places with. And so the company we bought, it's the military recruitment firm, had a storied history. They had a culture of excellence in serving the military long-term government contracts in place, it would have been, if I wanted to go down that path, which I, I wouldn't independently start a company that would compete with them, but if I if I did, it would have been a 10, 15-year slog to eventually get in the same spot. And so, you know, from a time value of money standpoint, compared to the purchase price, it made sense to purchase. What specific skill set did you have that you thought would align with that, or did it even matter? You know, I didn't want to go into something that I felt wildly uncomfortable in. The military recruitment firm you know, largely operates as a communications marketing firm. I mean, there's a processing element to it, and there's obviously tremendous nuance in the details of, of how you do the job and do the job well. But you know, fundamentally, it was a communications company, and I had experience owning and operating an ad agency, and the principles were largely the same and continue to be the same today. And so you just saw an opportunity like, hey, I've kind of got this similar skill set. I think I would be a good fit for owning this company at the time. 
I wish it was that well planned out. I mean, I was ambitious. I was probably stupid in some ways. I'm not sure if you run a Monte Carlo simulation on that opportunity in particular, that it would have always turned out the same way. But I guess that's true of any any company in the size range that we look at. And so, you know, we really felt like that it was something worth trying and it was sort of a learning opportunity that we thought had good upside potential and turned out to be the case. We've had a you know, wonderful partnership with the company and continue to grow the company today. And here's what jumped out to me about Brent's approach is, look, we've tried to brainstorm ideas that look similar to this. And so many of those sketches have like a buffet of benefits for the companies that we would invest in, you know? And Brent's approach is like way more sensible and bespoke. And it makes sense, right? Like every company doesn't need the same thing. Yeah. And also, I think on the opposite side of that, you know, the company has requirements and then the investor has requirements. And so it's trying to figure out how to come together on that. I think part of what makes Brent's approach cool is that a lot of these people, these businesses that they're buying are looking to get out of business. Either they're retiring early or they're just retiring or they're just looking for a way to leave the business. And Brent is able to come in there and say like, hey, this is part of your legacy. The business is great. It should continue forward. It doesn't necessarily have to continue with you. That's something that we can help you do. And you know, from the outside looking in, Dan, I think like, my first idea about that is like, well, how valuable is that really? And then after talking to Brent and after owning one of these businesses, I say really valuable. You know, for a company to come in and be able to put management in place to continue having good years, good revenue, maybe even growth, that's a feat that we weren't able to accomplish, Dan. And that's a part of the reason why we sold our business is because we didn't believe that we were going to be able to do that. And so Brent's friend comes in and they can do that. I just thought this was super fascinating, Ian. And you guys are going to hear it later on in this episode. This has a lot to do with the philosophy that Brent has for the portfolio companies that he's bringing in. And I think you know that's what distinguishes adventures from more traditional cutthroat private equity firms or PE firms. You know, like yeah, if it's your legacy, you know, and you want to retire in less than a decade, do you really want to sell your company to a churn and burn shop? And I think in Brent's company, his priority is making employees feel genuinely secure and valued, even though the company is being taken over. There's a team of seven of us at the adventures level, and then each independent company is, is staffed you know, fully with proper staffing. So we're not really providing what I would call traditional services down into the company. The, the seven people that work at the adventures level are, are focused on governance within the companies, you know, oversight, helping really support and assist the leaders of those companies, and then you know, looking at, at new opportunities as they come in. You know, we're really focused on helping the leadership within the companies grow personally, grow professionally, take advantage of opportunities that maybe they, they weren't able to take advantage of otherwise, and you know, be a sounding board and a support mechanism for them. I mean, you know, they're people, right? We try to support them as people. People go through ups and downs, and companies go through ups and downs and challenges. And so we have an interesting vantage point by the number of companies that we see and get involved in and, you know, kind of the skill sets that we have on staff that are different. So we're able to provide a different level of organization within the companies and and advice, I guess you'd call it, than would be normal. You kind of spoke about the company as if it was an independent entity, but does Adventure actually own that company? Well, all of our late stage companies, we have a majority stake in. Some of them we own 100% of and others we don't. We always try to take a majority stake in the companies. 
A lot of times we're exiting a retiring owner or an owner that wants to take a significant step back out. And so the most logical thing to do is to be the primary source of liquidity. And then really the minority stakes we look at as being tied to future performance of the company and, and really trying to set up the company for future success from an incentive standpoint. You know, our default is a high percentage of the company. And then we're able to, I should say, willing to come down from an ownership stake, depending on who else would like to be involved and, and what we think would be a good incentive structure. So I was listening to a couple other podcasts that you'd done leading up to having you on this show. One of the things that you said on the podcast, which I thought was interesting, which is, you know, a lot of times these owners are exiting the companies or they want to sell their companies and you're finding it really hard to, to purchase companies that aren't tied so closely to the owners. You know, I think it's pretty common within the small businesses. Me and my business partner, Dan, we just sold our business about a year and a half ago. One of the critiques from the buyer was like, I can't believe how uninvolved you guys were in this business. That was through design, through process and all that. And it seems like it's very hard to find companies that are of that nature. Is that what you find to be true as well? The areas that we focus on, so, you know, sort of the lowest end, we do a million dollars of owner earnings. And then on the high end, sort of up to $10 million of owner earnings. So those are the size of companies that, that we typically look at. You know, I would say on the lower end of the spectrum, it's fairly unusual well, on the lowest end of the spectrum, it's extremely unusual to have the mode of the business or the competitive advantage of the business separated and independent from the ownership. You know, you really have to, as you know, I'm preaching to the choir here, you have to be very intentional about how you set up the structure of the company. And it's in many ways the opposite of what feels natural. You know, most founders of companies, the nature of their mentality is they want to do everything because they can do it better than the, the next person, right? And sort of what gets you there won't take you to the next level. And in fact, is the limiting force in many ways of going to the next level or next five levels. I call that the ceiling of brute force, right? Where you just you pound and pound and pound. You can't figure out why you keep hitting the ceiling. And it's it's because you can't scale beyond your personal effort and time. And we've seen companies that are large. I mean, we, you know, we've seen 30, 40, 50 million dollar companies that are, you know, just have the incredible capacity of the founders, what allows them and enables them to, to operate at that level, but they're capped out, right? And so every, every company goes through that transition time if they make it to the next level. And so, you know, I would say 90 to 95% of the businesses that we look at really aren't transferable except under a very slim set of circumstances in that way where you're really trying to train a new owner for a job. And that's just not the type of company that we pursue. And so when you say train a new owner for a job, does that sometimes mean your new management structure that would come in? I mean, is there a situation where it's transferable to a new management structure, but not necessarily with the owner that operates the business, but under your organization? Or do you just say, look, the only way that this thing works is with the owner and therefore like our management is even untrainable at that point? I think there's a big divide in the people that buy these businesses. On one side, you have you know search funds or what I would call onesie twosie operators, where in both of those structures, the acquirer is wanting to take a very active, direct, day-to-day, week-to-week management role within the company. And so there's a number of companies that operate within sort of that 
environment that do quite well and and they set themselves up for success. I mean, it doesn't scale the way that our structure scales, but it's much easier to find companies that you can step into a day-to-day, week-to-week role and and run. Whereas what we're looking for is, is leadership within the company that is fairly independent. And I say fairly independent because you're never going to find complete independence from the owner, but you know, fairly independent from the ownership and that wants to continue to transition. And, and we try to do a really good job. I don't think we always do a fantastic job. We try really hard to you know align our style with what they'd like. I mean, we have some non-negotiable values that we have and we're going to vet those prior to the close, but really post-close, we try to adjust our behavior and adjust our style to whatever the leadership team needs to be successful and incentivize everyone for success. Tell me a little bit about that incentivization process because, you know, as an entrepreneur, it's like, it's really hard for me to understand incentivization when it isn't tied to equity. What is this management level looking for? When you say tied to equity, right, there's there's really three sides to equity. One is control. And as a majority holder of the equity, there's, you know, the control for a minority shareholder is not an option. So you can take that off the table. And really what you're talking about is when there's excess cash flow for distributions from the operations of the company, where do those flow? And then upon potential exit, where do those funds flow? We always structure an incentive package that usually has at least one component, either ongoing cash flows and or exit in that case, but we don't exit hardly ever. So really what we try to do is incentivize the leadership within the company to you know, make wise decisions with cash and to share in the upside when there is some. So it, it is equity-like. The, the challenge, as I'm sure you know, is when you start, you know, giving quote unquote equity to people when there's already a tremendous amount of equity value built up within the company, the tax ramifications are just brutal. And so what we try to do is we, you know, it's not for our benefit. We wouldn't be paying the taxes on that. It's for the benefit of the operators and the leaders of the company that we structure things and spend a tremendous amount on legal fees to make sure it's all on the up and up to structure an incentive package that doesn't, you know, directly benefit Uncle Sam more so than anybody else. Right. Yeah. And you guys, if you have really no plan of selling, it seems like you're in a buy and hold mode forever, then there is no exit, like you said. And so it seems like what you're saying is like the best case scenario for a lot of these people is to earn the cash year over year on good returns, essentially. And you've figured out a structure to distribute that to them. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and like I said, we all want the same thing, right? We want to, you know, beyond treating people, the basics of business that we, at least the basics is how we think about it, you know, treat people very, very well, you know, do things the right way. But beyond that, I mean, we're all trying to increase earnings and the quality of the companies, right? And so the leadership is directly responsible for executing on the plan that is co-created with us. And when they execute well, they should absolutely share in the upside. So do you start from the back and work your way forward or forward back? Meaning like, do you say, okay, adventure, we need to make 25% year over year on investments. Everything else goes to these companies and these executives, or do you start from the executives? Each situation is independent, right? So when we come into an organization, there's an existing trajectory in the company. The way we like to think about it is, you know, we want at a minimum that existing trajectory to continue on. And hopefully through offering additional resources, the leadership team can change the trajectory in a positive way. And so, you know, we obviously want to incentivize 
sort of at a minimum that the trajectory is kept there. And then, you know, as the trajectory changes on the upside, both through things that we can bring to the table as adventures, as well as sort of the enabling maturation of the leadership team, we set up structures that sort of vary from a case to case basis. And when you say trajectory, I'm assuming what you're meaning is like, hey, we have some projections. This is where we think the company should be in five years. Is that true? Are you buying these companies to build them year over year? Or are you primarily buying them for the returns that they produce or a combination of both? We absolutely expect every one of the companies, especially over a five-year time horizon, to grow you know, short of some massive macro environment change. And so, you know, when we buy a company, you know, just to put rough numbers, if we, you know, if we're buying a company that's normally sort of has historically grown eight to 10% a year, right, which is not unheard of in small companies, it may seem like a large amount of growth for a larger company, but for small companies, I mean, there's lots of headroom, there's, you know, lots of opportunities for positive volatility is how I call it, you know, then we're able to kind of project forward and say, well, look, if it's grown eight to 10% for the last seven years, chances are it'll probably grow 8 to 10% for the next five years unless the trajectory changes, right? And so we're trying to figure out what are those things that are the controlling factors that would allow that trajectory to change on the upside, and then obviously protecting the controlling factors on the downside that would you know, cause it to have a negative change in trajectory. Ian, today's a special day. You want to guess why? Why? Because today we have our first sponsor of the TMBA podcast. We're legit. We're legit. <laughs> Maybe we should get an applause effect. And this is an extra special sponsor because it's one of the best places on the web to find tools to help grow your business. And we know this company personally. In fact, their CEO and founder was the keynote at our biggest event last year. So this is really exciting. Are you ready to get into what they have to offer to TMBA listeners? Let's hear it. Looking for the best tools to grow your business without dropping a ton of cash? I know that's you, boss man. That's always me. That's always you. Well, then you need to check out AppSumo, a site exclusively for entrepreneurs that offers deals that are typically 90% off the retail price. Some previous examples include Dropbox subscriptions, Evernote. They gave a great package for Mark Manson's most recent book, and they recently offered a course by Derek Sivers, absolutely free. So if you're either just starting out on your entrepreneurial journey or you're already making six figures, you should check out AppSumo. And even if you just want to see what incredible and hilarious copy looks like, sign up for their newsletter, which is completely free. They send it out weekly to nearly a million people. So don't miss out. I'm on the list. I'm one of nearly a million people. And as a special offer to TMBA listeners, the crew over at AppSumo has offered a few things for free. You can go check them out at appsumo.com slash TMBA. There you'll get access to AppSumo's validation cheat sheet and their guide called 130 Ways to Get Traffic for Free. So the validation cheat sheet is designed for entrepreneurs who are trying to get a start with a digital product, and that could be courses, software, a physical product, anything ranging from iPhone cases to playing cards, or service businesses like freelancing, productized services, and consulting. And for those who have established online businesses, 130 Ways to Get Traffic is a huge guide, and you can just sit down with it and implement some of the very clear strategies to get more traffic to your site. 
You can't do better than AppSumo. Nearly a million people go to their site every month. They know what's up for sure. Thank you to AppSumo.com slash TMBA. Go there and check out their free gifts for TMBA listeners. And a big thanks to AppSumo for being our first sponsor on this show. And so I'm looking at the list of companies here, Brent, and it's like a pool company. It's a manufacturing company for pools. It's the military recruiting company. What is it that your management brings to all these companies that you feel is the biggest value? Well, first of all, I would say that we're excellent at choosing the companies in terms of the leadership that we're partnering with and the situations that we're getting involved in, right? So the the single best thing that I think we do to help our returns is not get involved in companies that are filled with challenging people or challenging situations, right? <laughs> our philosophy is just don't get involved in the first place and then you don't have to work through tough situations. There's always going to be ups and downs to every business. But in general, I would say the common theme with all the current companies that we own is they're staffed with really nice people who have the best interests of the company and the people within those companies at heart and are trying to execute and do their job well, right? And so what we bring to the table is, you know, at a minimum, hopefully an environment that encourages the right behavior. So we like to ask our leaders, you know, what are things we can invest in today that won't pay off for five to 10 years? That's a very unusual question. That may not seem unusual. That is an extremely unusual question compared to how most people that sort of, I wouldn't call them competitors, but that operate in a similar space, right? We're not trying to buy a company and immediately look to flip it. We're not trying to slash and burn. What we're trying to do is we're trying to help grow the company, both top line, margin growth, obviously bottom line is all that clicks in. We have some expertise in-house. We have relationships that we've built over the last decade that seem to come in handy from time to time. And so we try to offer those things to support the leadership and help them be better at what they do. You mentioned nice people. That kind of stuck with me. I'm trying to quantify nice people. <laughs> well, we have a lot of different personalities and a lot of different political beliefs within the companies. We love diversity of all sorts. What we don't like from a diversity standpoint is the desire to gain as much as you can on an individual basis over the short term. When you think about how that manifests itself in behavior, most of bad behavior is a short-term one-time gain that the person who is playing it is trying to exact as much gain from that individual situation, thinking that they'll never play another game with those people again, right? So is this somebody that might be like trying to take all of their profits out of the business year over year, not reinvesting in their business? Would that be a scenario? Well, I mean, from an ownership standpoint, that might be, you know, when I think about it, I think about it more in terms of, you know, leadership teams and leaders of companies, right? People that are trying to make themselves look good at the expense of the people around them. They're trying to constantly chip away and take advantage of situations. I would say, you know, just outright bad behavior in terms of fraud and deceit and just the political games that seem to go on in, in most organizations. We have almost no tolerance. And when I say almost, I mean, look, people stumble, right? But we're all imperfect. We're all messy. We try to give people grace when they do screw up. And look, we screw up, right? I mean, it's not like we're perfect either at the adventures level. I uh, apologize fairly frequently. But I think that there's a common culture of trying to look out for other people, trying to be generous and kind and patient. 
at least that's what we're striving towards, right? And so I think that's what controls the type of situations and people we like to get involved in. So when we go and visit a company, my favorite things to do are to eat with them, see how they treat the wait staff, see what sort of their expectations are around service. I like to meet the significant others of the people that we work with, if they have significant others, and really try to understand their their perspective on life, right? A lot of problems can be avoided if you uh, just don't get involved with the wrong people. This is very high level, right? Getting to this level of scrutiny. And I've got to imagine, like you said, it comes pretty far down the process. So I think I read last year that you guys reviewed 2,000 deals, something like that. Yeah, a little over actually 2,500 last year, but yes. At what point in the screening process does this come in? I mean, you have to be Because these aren't things that manifest themselves on paper necessarily, right? Correct. We have a pretty good BS detector. We're asking some questions and that are open-ended and letting people talk. And and usually if you give people enough rope, they tend to to hang themselves if that's the direction. (laughs) Right? Yeah. Now we have gotten, there's some very articulate people that we have gotten down the road with and realized that they're not who we thought they were. And, you know, the nice thing is the due diligence period is not fairly lengthy. I mean, it's typically between 90 and 120 days on, on these deals once you go under a letter of intent. And so there's a heavy get to know you period. We like to have a lot of conversations that have nothing to do with the business to try to understand, you know, what the person wants and make sure all the pieces add up. Do you think that this detective work, your vetting process, is this repeatable for other firms that want to do what you're doing? I mean, sure. I think. I mean, it's, I don't think there's any magic to it. It's just you pick up on things over the course of doing it hundreds of times that are fairly subtle nuances, right? I mean, I think that's the biggest thing I've learned probably over the last well, 10 years of my career is just understanding not to take things at face value and to dig deeper and to, you know, trust when you see certain little things that you know may appear little, usually they signal something deeper or, and sometimes they don't, right? And knowing when to separate those two. And so Brent, out of the 2000 deals that you looked at last year, it seems like you only went through with a couple of them. Correct. Tell me about that process. How does that work? How do you get from 2000 to only a couple by the end of the year with a staff of seven people? So the first pass that we're looking at in any opportunity is, do we think there is something sustainable about the company beyond the ownership? So the default is there's not. And so we're trying to see signals that there is something sustainable there. Occasionally, we think there is and there's not. And I'm sure we passed on plenty of opportunities that there is and, and we just couldn't see it, right? But we try to you know, initially have a thesis around, okay, you know, why is there a moat there? What is the moat? Okay, I'm just going to cut into the episode real quick here. We try and make it easy for everyone to understand what's going on. The term economic moat was coined and popularized by Warren Buffett, and it refers to the business's ability to maintain a competitive advantage over its competitors in order to protect its long-term profits and market shares from competing firms. So much like you would build a moat around a castle during war times, it might be filled with water and alligators. Same thing goes for a business or the competitive advantage, if you want to call it that, how sustainable is it? And we're trying to assess if we think the situation, you know, with using, you know, looking at tons of different factors, anything that we can see, if the situation makes sense, right? So, you know, one thing that doesn't make sense is if somebody started the business four years ago, it's rocketed success, they're 35 years old and they want to sell, probably not going to be something that we 
intuitively would go after just because the seller is always in a superior position of knowledge. And if the person wants to sell at that stage in their career, probably is not going to be something that we want to sustain long term would be my guess. So, we, you know, we look at just various factors like that and try to just do the detective work to figure out what the, what the situation is. A lot of times we can pass very, very quickly on an opportunity. And then, you know, the process moving forward on, on a deeper dive is we'll ask a series of questions. We'll chat with an intermediary if there is one involved or have a series of conversations with the ownership about what they're hoping to accomplish and, you know, kind of give us more color around the situation if it passes those sniff tests, then we typically meet up with them in person, submit a term sheet that outlines the major points of the deal. And then if that goes from there, then we sign a letter of intent and go under due diligence and try to verify that the facts are as they were presented. Trying to get my head around your process and a lot of it use words like intuitive. Does that mean that all this isn't written down? None of this is, well, I, mean, I shouldn't say none of this written down. I mean, we have various checklists we use for making sure we don't miss anything, but most of it is fairly natural at this point. I mean, we've done it so often and continually do it that, you know, you don't need to go to a manual and say, okay, we had the conversation. We asked these questions. Now what's the next step, right? I mean, we kind of, we kind of know what the next step is. You know, I think it's a lot of ways what we do is far more art than science. I think as you move up in the private equity world and it becomes more about, you know, financial modeling and debt use and things like that, there's way more process driven. We intentionally try to not be process driven because most of the people that we're interfacing with, you know, they're doing it for the first time and they're scared and they have hopes and dreams and expectations. And you got to be really sensitive to what the feedback is you're getting and you can't put that in a process document. That's fascinating. You know, and I think that's obviously one of the ways that you're separating yourselves from other PE firms. I'm not even sure if you would call yourself a PE firm. Technically, anybody who buys private equity interests is a PE firm, but I mean in the traditional sense, you know, we use all internal capital. We've raised to date no outside capital. That may change. I'm not sure it will, but uh, we've been exploring that and what we do is fundamentally helping typically retiring owners to exit gracefully and maintain their legacy. I mean, that's the way we look at it. So that seems like a very different, it may look like the same on the surface, but it feels like a pretty different aim and goal than is typical with private equity. And when you say help owners retire gracefully, you know, where are some of the places that you're looking for these 2000 deals? Where are you getting your deal flow from? We are fortunate enough, you know, we built a reputation over a fairly long period of time now that we get a lot of inbound interest directly from either the owners themselves and or their advisory team, the bankers or the lawyers or CPAs or wealth managers, you know, people like that, that will reach out and, and say, you know, we'd like to have a confidential conversation about an opportunity. So we engage quite a bit on that side. We, we have built a, a network of intermediaries nationwide that we look at a lot of those deals, although we don't compete well in auctions. We typically don't actively pursue too many just straight auction opportunities. And there's, you know, all different flavors of intermediaries out there, right? Some have a extremely draconian process and it's literally whoever the top bidder is gets it. We shy away from those types of relationships. Well, if you want to call them relationships, we tend much more towards the intermediaries that say, you know, look, when we come across something, when we bring you something, we want you to take a really hard look at it. We want the seller to care about far more than money because that not only is a good 
selection bias for us in terms of the culture of the company, right? The reinvestment probably that's been made and, and the emphasis on the types of values that we'd like to find, you know, but at the same time, it's also going to offer us the opportunity to be the right person and not just the highest bidder. You know, throughout this process, Brian, I think a lot of the listeners are thinking like, wow, you guys are talking about some high level stuff here. I'm an entrepreneur. I've had an exit. Maybe I've got some money. I'd really like to do what Brian is doing. I'd like to have a portfolio of companies. I feel like that's my strong skill set is to be able to manage all these properties. So I want to try and demystify some of this. So when you say intermediaries, what does that actually mean? Is there a business broker in Wisconsin that you have a relationship with? Business brokers or investment bankers, I mean, there's, they, they go by a lot of different names, right? But there's somebody who is professionally representing a seller in a transaction and bringing them, quote unquote, to market. And so how much of your time in the early days or how much of your time now is spent building these relationships? Because it seems like at this point, you said a lot of them come to you. You know, what are the things that you did in the beginning for that to happen? Were you doing content marketing? Were you going to these conferences and passing out business cards? Yeah, I mean, all of the above, a lot of steak dinners. Okay. <laughs> There's just really no way to get around. I mean, it's, you know, it shouldn't be mystifying. I mean, it's business development the same way you would you know, develop business with any product, right? I mean, in essence, we sell money and support, right, for a living, and, and we're trying to engage with people that see those opportunities the same way you develop relationships with anybody, right? Some you want to get on the phone with, some you want to meet in person and uh, develop trust with. I mean, from an intermediary standpoint, I think one of the things that we've done, oh man, I would say better than average is, you know, we try to say no quickly. We try not to lead anybody on. We try to be very transparent and honest with how we look at the business. We're not going to sugarcoat things and we're going to give them, you know, give them honest, good feedback, which sounds like a basic, well, of course, but most people don't do that. And I think it's it's far easier in the moment to make up excuses or to string people along. And, you know, what's the, the old adage? The yeses and nos will make you a lot of money and the maybes will kill you. You know, we try not to waste people's time, uh, whether it's the uh, sellers themselves or the intermediaries. And, and just treat them, again, this sounds so basic, but just, you know, treat them as a valued partner and nice human being, right? You know, a lot of people look at these as very transactional one-time events, and, and we're trying to build a long-term reputation for, you know, the 50-year plan that we talk about around here. I completely agree with that philosophy, but why do you think we've gotten to a point where a competitive advantage is treat people decently? I think it's the one-time game problem. I mean, I think most people look at business, they say the world's big, I can always find more people to interact with. And so I'm going to exact as much value out of the situation in the short term as possible. And unfortunately, it works well enough for a number of people for long enough that it seems to be the way to go, right? Do you find that the best deals haven't hit the marketplace yet? The best opportunities that we get are direct to us where the person says, look, I've been following you for five years. I've read everything that you've ever written. I've listened to things you've said. We want you to buy us and we want to be paid fairly and we know what fair is or we'd like to work through what fair is in your mind and you know, kind of get to an agreement. But we really feel comfortable that you're the right person for us. I mean, that's that's the, the holy grail for us and, and finding those people. I mean, the, the types of people that come to us that say stuff like that have typically built very enduring, high quality businesses. They've invested in people within the companies. They've treated them well. There's a lot of, if you want to use the analogy, there's a lot of steel in that bridge. 
So they're sold on you by the time that they come to you because you guys have similar philosophies because you've been able to put your philosophy out there. They identify with it or they've been living the same philosophy and they feel like they're a match. And I think for a lot of these small business owners, it it is a very emotional transaction, especially if it's your first one, right? You want to feel like your baby is going to somebody that you can trust. And especially if you're going to be staying on in that deal, you know, it's an organization that you can stomach, these people, this is their lives. You got to understand this is not, most of the businesses that we get involved in are not in major cities, right? I mean, these are people that live in communities that they employ people that they know. They went to the their employees' bar mitzvahs and weddings, and they help put their kids through college. And I mean, this is, it's people, right? And, and so they want somebody who's going to come in and, you know, at a minimum, maintain the legacy and hopefully bring a different skill set to the table, which, you know, again, may sound like no brainers, but that's just not, you know, that's not the typical buyer, right? There's a lot of country club deals that are done out there where everyone throws in a little bit of money. Everyone has different interests. There's competing personalities and a lot of egos involved. And I mean, it can get nasty fast, right? I mean, you, you layer in that complication on top of a debt load and, I mean, it feels like playing with dynamite to me, which is we have no interest in doing that. You wrote an annual letter, and I'm not sure if you do it every year, but I read your 2016, and I just want to read part of that. So you said, and I think you were talking about other firms, a factory somewhere pumping out early 40s to late 50s, former executives who love to make big promises with no ability to deliver. The playbook is simple. Promise the moon, lock up the company in a prolonged due diligence, go hunt for country club dollars with fancy spreadsheets and nonsensical projections. Can you shed some light onto that? There's a group of people that that are known as independent sponsors out there. And so we run into independent sponsors on almost every deal these days, at least every deal that's being shopped around. And typically they're males in their late 30s, early 40s to mid 50s. They've had some success in business and, you know, are trying to piece together the next part of their career. And so what it looks like is they will put up a huge number, you know, uh, sort of far out in front of what a professional buyer would pay under the circumstances to try to get somebody who's, you know, only cares about the money, which often is the case. I mean, to be completely honest, most sellers, you know, we joke about around the office that they say, well, you know, as long as you pay top dollar, top dollar doesn't matter. It's basically whatever they can get out of the situation. And so what happens with these people is they lock them up. They then renegotiate the deal multiple times. They try to scrounge around and get the dollars with very little hope of making the deal happen. But if it does happen, now you've got a bunch of people with you know a lot of different interests all involved in the business and typically a pretty big debt load on top of it. Yeah, when we sold the business, we went through this a couple of times. You know, people would lock it up in due diligence and then, you know, essentially what you're saying is waste your time, offer you a lowball offer on the 29th day of the 30-day LOI. You know, how do you avoid that? Because it seems to be inherent in the process with a lot of these brokers that that's just how it happens is you lock these deals up so they can quote do due diligence. A lot of them have no plan to pay top dollar for these companies or what you're asking. So as a seller, how do you avoid those situations? As a seller, you need to really understand who's buying the business. I mean, again, this may sound like a no-brainer. It sounds like you all did it, you know, in the right way. You know, most people, for whatever reason, get blinded by the big numbers in the indication of interest or term sheet that leads to the LOI and just lose sight of who these people are, right? In many of the same ways that we evaluate, you know, do the detective work on evaluating the sellers, I mean, they should evaluate the buyers, right? We encourage people to 
you know, Google us a lot or call people, like call people they may know that know us or, you know, try to find out information on us, see if who we are is, you know, what we say we are. Most people don't do that. And then you get into these situations where you get some very articulate people who keep making promises and not delivering. And, you know, I would just say, yeah, from a seller standpoint, just do your homework, right? Do your homework on who's going to buy the company. From our standpoint, you know, as a sort of competing buyer, what we like to do is say, you know what, we don't think that's a reasonable valuation. We don't think those are reasonable terms. We think those are pretty outside of the norm in terms of what we're used to. Now, hey, if you can get that, absolutely go for it. Obviously hold a grudge or anything, you know, good for you. But if the deal falls through, we'd like to be the first call. I want to talk just a little bit about the mindset of somebody that's retiring and potentially selling their company to you guys. One of the things that I was going through when we sold our company was I was just emotionally exhausted from running the company for the last seven years. I was completely over it. I was ready to move on to other things. How do you incentivize me to stay on with that company through that transition and maybe for several years? Well, I mean, there's a lot of different ways depending on how burned out you are and what your interests are. I mean, we work with people who want to walk away day one. And what we try to do in those situations is make sure they have a financial interest at the very least, even though they're not going to be directly involved. They've sold a financial interest to, you know, refer over clients, say nice things about us, you know, just in any way that can help the business succeed because they still have a, a stake in it, right? Either through seller debt or through an earnout or, you know, some sort of bonus structure. And then, you know, we, we also deal though with a lot of owners who want the pressure off them. And I think they have the running a business, as you know, Ian is like being in a pressure cooker, right? It's it's tough and it wears on you. And so, you know, we can offer support and an ability to do things that are fairly unusual in the size of companies we deal with. And so that's attractive to owners to stick on and, and say, yeah, I'd love to take the next ride with you all and see where it ends up. Oh, interesting. So you might be able to place them in another organization. We're not opposed to doing that, but even within their own organization, I mean, being able to sort of put the company on a different trajectory is something that's appealing to a lot of owners, right? I mean, they've kind of been on their current trajectory for a long time. You know, if they can hold a stake, you know, roll forward a stake into the new entity or the, the new structure, grow that dramatically larger over the next called three, five, seven years, the math makes sense for them to be able to do that and have it all work out financially. How do these people identify with you? How often are you in their offices? What do they see your role as? Well, I have a relationship with all of them. They're always able to, I'm available for them to call my cell. I'm probably seeing, I mean, at a minimum once a quarter, depending on the, the situation. And then, we, you know, they're interfacing with our team members at least on a weekly basis, if not on a daily basis. Somebody on their team is interacting with somebody on, on the adventures team. You know, in terms of what they think of as my role, I think it depends on the situation, right? The cycle of where the company is and the cycle of the business. But, you know, I would say I'm either helping with something directly within the business if I can be helpful or just, you know, serving more on a board level and advisory role and trying to be supportive and helpful to them if, if I can help. So I'm just trying to think about this in terms of like what makes a good investment, you know, for you personally. And it seems like what makes a good investment for you personally is that you don't necessarily have to get involved with these companies on a day-to-day -day basis. So you're like, oh, this is a really interesting company. I have a unique skill set that's positioned to help them grow 5X, but it can't require me to work on a day-to-day -day basis with them. I can only interact with them a couple times a quarter or something like that. Do you think about it in terms of that or... 
the way that I think about it is we want to get involved in, in situations with people that would win without us. We want to find companies and leadership teams that are doing a great job without our involvement that hopefully add value to them some way. So, you know, I don't want to give the impression that it's like I don't talk to one of our company or somebody within the company, you know, except for once a quarter. It's not like that. I mean, in terms of face-to-face meetings, sometimes it is up to once a quarter, you know, we'll go by. But I mean, we're in pretty constant contact and trying to offer any support where, you know, like I said, where we can be helpful. But at the end of the day, like if it was just a sheer product of, you know, our internal force, you know, sort of pushing on the companies, we would tap out. Well, we would have tapped out at one company, let alone five. So the only way we can scale is, you know, again, enabling leadership teams that are already successful to be more successful. Tell me a little bit about the management structures. It seems like there's probably a decent opportunity for you to provide all these different managers with training. And there has to be some kind of synergy within your organization that can help pull all these people up together. Is that the case? To some degree. I mean, I think synergies for the most part are talked about a lot and very rarely realized. So each situation, each leadership team is in such a different spot. I mean, there are similarities from time to time, you know, but we're not putting people through sort of a standardized training program or something like that. I mean, I, if I was them, I'd want to claw my eyes out if that was, <laughs> I was told to like, you know, sit in a room and have somebody tell me about, you know, whatever it would be. What we try to do is we try to tailor resources and people, you know, outside advice, inside advice, tricks that we've learned kind of through the years at the appropriate time, right? Because it's only relevant in that moment. And if you bring it up too soon or too late, then it, you know, it loses its relevancy. So it may seem counterintuitive, but we kind of do things on an individual basis just to try to help support the individual company. Awesome, Brent. Well, thank you so much for joining us. And I really appreciate you opening the doors on adventure. You guys have a really interesting perspective on what I would consider to be a very old boys club in a way. Sure. Well, hey, you know, I really appreciate you having me on. And yeah, thanks for the invite. Well, Ian, I got to say, for me, this was an inspiring story to hear. And for me, the takeaway comes back to what you said at the top of the episode, which is something to do with confidence. Because it's obvious that you can't just have a little bit of money and go out there and chuck it around and expect good things to happen. And often that's what a lot of these, you know, we've all heard from like the amateur PE joker schemes. There's a lot of jokers out there calling themselves PE firms. What I like about Brent's approach or what resonated with me is just this confidence to work at it for a long time because, yeah, he's looking at thousands of deals to have five pieces of his portfolio. Yeah, isn't that incredible? It is starting a new business, right? It's the same sort of tenacity and workload that you have to have in starting a new business that you have to apply to going out and being an investor. The other thing that I love about Brent's approach is how he treats people like human beings (laughs) and not numbers and not spreadsheets, (laughs) which is seemingly novel in this world. And so it was really refreshing to talk to Brent. And for me, it was eye-opening to see how something like this might work for me in the future. Yeah, it's a good message, right? Like every once in a while, we're lucky enough to have dinner or go to an event when you get to hang out with people that own multi-million dollar businesses. And you realize like they're not traffic to your website or they're not a like on Facebook. They're a person who's had a massive success with their life, you know? And if you can build a relationship with them, potentially good things can happen. 
So this week's episode is at tropicalmba.com forward slash Brent Bishore. I want to thank Brent for coming onto the show and sharing with us about adventure. And Dan, I want to thank you for being here as well. Oh, no problem. <laughs> it's my job. <laughs> See you next week. Hey, thanks for listening to the Tropical MBA podcast. You can go to tropicalmba.com, get access to hundreds of back episodes and all kinds of other goodies. Load up your iPod. That is the cheapest way to fly business class on your next international flight. We will see you next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time.